0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Go ahead and get your Bibles open in Nehemiah chapter number one. Nehemiah chapter number one. Now, this morning, uh, we are beginning a book, uh, a series going through the book of Nehemiah. Now, why are we, why are we doing this? Well. Because I told you last week, we looked at Nehemiah uh, a little bit, very briefly, and there's just there's incredible truth in the book of Nehemiah that applies to us as a church, it applies to us as individual believers, but really I think applies to our situation uh, as Christians in the world today. Uh, in Nehemiah, Israel has been scattered for about 80 years, 75, 80 years, and they're finally returning. To Jerusalem, they're returning to their worship. They're returning to their relationship with God, and I believe a lot of us, especially beginning of the year, you know, January is kind of a fresh start. You know, we all have resolutions, uh, or a lot of us have resolutions. I have stopped doing resolutions because I never keep them. Uh, so what's the point? It just makes me feel bad. Uh, so I have goals that I want to achieve this year. I have things I want to see done this year, but they're not resolutions. They're they're themes for the year. But we have these times in our life uh, where, especially in January, we're kind of starting over, where we want to begin anew. We want to start fresh. And one of the things that we should desire uh, every day, but especially the first year is a good time to do it, is to say, hey, this year I want to grow deeper in my relationship with God. And that's something that we should always strive to do. You are never going to get to the place where you have arrived in your walk with God until you see him face to face in heaven when you close your eyes in death and open them and see Jesus you can say this is as deep as I need to go on my walk with God because I'm in his presence until then we should always read more study more learn more pray more do more for God and so I really as I was reading Nehemiah beginning preparing for last week I just had a burden that you know what we as a as a as a church me as a believer you as a believer we need to return to, to God, to return to a relationship with him, to return to a time where we rely on him to use us for his honor and for his glory. And Nehemiah does a great job really telling us as believers how we as a, a church need to do that, how we as an individual child of God need to do that. I really, you know, this is the year of discipleship, but I really want it to be the year of restoration. Restoration of you as a believer in your walk with God. Maybe restoration of your family growing deeper into the Word of God together. You and your spouse growing deeper into the Word of God together. Us as a church growing deeper into the Word of God together. But not just growing deeper to learn more and study more, but so that we can be used more. So we can lift up Christ and draw all men unto Him. Now, as we begin the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1, we really see uh, a theme beginning. Here's a theme. God wants us as his church. God wants us as his children to thrive. However, we live in a world that really goes in the opposite direction of what God says thriving is or what thriving is. Looks like, and here's what I mean: Everyone who has ever been born is born in sin. We were born in iniquity. We were born enemies to God. Now, this sin nature that we all have. Now, I know everyone here this morning. Most people here this morning are are professing believers, so we have accepted Christ as our Savior to pay the penalty for our sin, and to redeem us to God the Father. We put our faith and trust in His death, burial, and resurrection to save us from the penalty and the power of sin, but we still have that sin nature. And that sin nature causes us to be very selfish. We tend to view ourselves as the center of everything. That means that everyone around us is there to make us happy to serve us Uh, and so we you know we we don't we and sometimes we we struggle because we don't understand why how come my wife doesn't understand I'm the center of the universe how come my kids don't understand I'm the center of the universe or if you're a parent or you know your kids like how come my parents don't understand I'm the center of the universe. And we struggle with that as well. How come my boss doesn't realize that, yeah, I'm here to earn a paycheck, but he's really here to just to make me happy. My my coworkers are there to make me happy. And so because everything is about us, uh, when things don't go our way, we get frustrated. We lose patience. We don't really understand what people are dealing with. You know, and I, I feel this the most when I'm on the highway. How come these... Idiot drivers on 81 don't realize my time is more important than their time, and they need to get out of my way. They need to stop driving the speed limit in the left lane. The left lane is for important people, and that's me. Get out of my way. Uh, So to make matters worse, we also live in a world that kind of exalts that idea that everything's about you. You're the only thing that matter. You know, our culture celebrates the individual at the cost of the whole. You matter more than everyone else. See, God's idea of thriving is completely opposite of that. It flies in the face of individualization. See, we see two truths throughout the book of Nehemiah that that really attack this view head on. God's idea of thriving. Number one, it begins with you understanding that your desires, your preferences, your will is secondary to God's. God's plan is more important than your plan. God's desire is more important than your desire. God's preferences are more important than your preferences. And look, it's not that your preferences aren't important. It's not that your desires aren't important. It's just when your desires and your will and your preferences go contrary to what God says he wants to do, ours get put on the back burner because we have to do what God wants. We have to serve him and obey him. But it's more than just submitting your will to God's will or saying, well, God, you know, this is what you want, even though I want something different. It is being glad and happy to do it. It is joyfully saying, God, I'll put aside everything I want to do because you want me to do something different. I'll put my my desires, my plans, my will. I will put them aside so that I can serve you and I will do it gladly because I know your plans are better than my plans. Your ways are better than my ways. Your thoughts are better than my thoughts. And so, Lord, I put my faith and trust in not just you for salvation, but for you that you have a better plan for me and the world. The second truth is this. When we do this, when we eagerly and willingly put our desires, our preferences secondary to God's, we become a people that pursue joy over happiness. And that's not what we see in culture. Every commercial you see is designed to tell you that you deserve to be happy, and this this product this, this phone, this medication, this car, whatever it is, this dating app, whatever it is, this thing will make you happy. Every commercial tells you, you're awesome and you deserve this. And here's the thing, you're not that awesome and we really don't deserve anything. But the world says, no, 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 you, you're, you're, the, you're the best there's ever been. You know, we got the, you know, the Gillette, the best a man can get. Why do we deserve the best? We don't deserve the best. We deserve to be burning in hell right now. So everything else is bonus. But yeah, man, you're the best. You deserve this. You are worthy of this. Uh, you know, God's plan to, to thrive uh, is to pursue him and joy and not happiness. Because we've said it before, happiness is fleeting. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is based on your circumstances I get real happy when I get a brand new phone when I get out my upgrade and I get a new phone man I'm happy for a while but then you know what then they then Apple comes out with another phone that really there's no change in the old phone except hey we offer you a new color but oh I wish I had that iPhone 18 instead of the 17 I have I think you're only on 14 but anyway you know what I mean And so I'm on the iPhone 10, so I'm really far behind. So i really got to catch up. But you get that new phone, you're like, man, i got to have that. I need that now. I have it. I'm so happy. Oh, but there's something better. And I wish I had that better thing. So that thing that used to bring you happiness only lasts for a while. You know, you get happy when you get your tax refund this year. Taxes are coming up. And a lot of us are going to get tax refunds. Man, we get happy, but then we spend it all and... We still have bills to pay, we still have debt to, to deal with, and we spit it all and have nothing to show for it, and so suddenly we're not happy anymore. You know, as believers, we are to pursue joy because joy is unshakable in our circumstances. You know, happiness only lasts for a while, but joy is eternal. And so God gives us joy through putting our desires and our preferences and our will behind us and saying, God, you're more important. Your will is more important. I will gladly put my preferences aside to do what you would have me to do. And Nehemiah shows us that. Now, before we get into Nehemiah chapter one, I really want to catch us up and where we are in the story of the Bible. So we're going to go back a little bit, not very far. We're just going to go back to the book of Exodus. So we're not going back to the beginning, just the book of Exodus. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to kind of tell the story. Exodus begins with God calling Israel out of slavery from Egypt and they've been in slavery for 400 years Uh, again we didn't go back to where how they got there but they've been in slavery to the land God raises up Moses says, Moses you're gonna lead my people out of slavery into the promised land the land that he had promised to to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 the land is going to flow with milk and honey the land that was designated and promised to the nation of Israel, So he, he leads them out of Israel, and he leads an incredible story how he, God frees them from Egypt, and he leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they go to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the, the Ten Commandments, and God's giving them water from a rock, and God's feeding them with manna from heaven, and God is showing his goodness. God is showing his mercy. God is showing his provision. But there's some people who don't believe him. There's some people in Israel who are discontent who doubt God's goodness who doubt God's grace who doubt God's provision and power so God punishes the nation of Israel and makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the generation of doubters dies off then he raises up Joshua and Joshua takes the nation of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land but They've been gone a while, there's some enemies there, but God uses Joshua and fights for Israel and uses him in incredible victory after victory after victory, and they drive out the, the Canaanites who are living in the land, and finally, 500 years after the promise was given to Abraham, Israel is established as a nation. They are living in the promised land under the rule of God's man, Joshua. And they're thriving, they're doing great, but then Joshua dies. And the judges rise up. And they've got a lot of problems in the book of Judges. Uh, They they fall into sin, they're conquered, they come back to God, God delivers them, and it's a constant kind of ebb and flow of falling into sin, coming back to God, falling into sin, coming to God, but eventually the Israelites look around at all the nations around them and say, you know, we don't want to be different. These other nations have kings. Why can't we have a king? So God gives them the desire of their heart. He gives them a king. Gives them Saul. Now Saul, humanly speaking, was the man who should be king. He was a man's man. The Bible says he stood a foot taller than, than everybody else. He was a powerful warrior. He was a mighty hunter. He was, I mean, he was just, you know, you'd think of Saul, and he's just this muscular, powerful man. He's, Saul is like the rock. You look at the tall, the rock, you know, just muscles and, and masculine. He's got that eyebrow thing I can't do where he's like, mm. you know, April can do it, uh, she can crook her eyebrow, uh, and if she ever does, run. Uh, but, you know, so you think, of, you think of just this powerful manly man, that is Saul. And Israel, they're like, yeah, he should be king. And so God puts him as king, and things go okay for a while. But then Saul ends up doubting God, doubting God's provision, doubting God's goodness, and so he offers an unacceptable sacrifice before God, and God removes him as king and says, I'm going to anoint someone else's king. And that's how we get David. Now David is the exact opposite of Saul. Saul's a man's man. He's tall, he's strong, he's muscular. David's a strong little poetry-writing harp-playing shepherd kid. David is so insignificant When Samuel goes to David's dad's house to anoint the new king, Jesse, his dad, forgets about David. He's like, oh, here's all my sons. And the the prophet goes and says, well, he's not it, he's not it, he's not it, he's not it. And finally the prophet says, you know what? God's telling me you have another kid. Do you have another kid? And Jesse goes, oh, yeah, David. Totally forgot about David. Because David is that insignificant. Now, David is has a, a tender heart. David has, he's kind of small. Bible says he's ruddy, means he's like a, a red-headed, you know, he's kind of red-headed skinny kid. He plays harp. He writes poetry. But David's no slouch. David killed a bear with his bare hands. That's, that's, that's pretty good. And it wasn't like a koala bear. It's not like he's beating Winnie the Pooh to death. You know, this is a, a bear. Uh, now, look, how do we hunt bears today? Well, we, we, we put bait out and we feed them for a year until they're big and fat. Then we get a real powerful gun, hide up in a tree and shoot them. That's, to me, that's not hunting, that's cheating. When you kill a bear with your bare hands, you can say, I'm a man like David. So David is, he's, he doesn't look the part, but he's a mighty man. He's a ferocious man. Uh, so under David, Israel flourishes. He defeats all the enemies of the nation, he drives them out, he, reuni- he reestablishes all the land, and Israel becomes a military powerhouse under David. But then David dies. And Solomon, his son, becomes king. Now, under David, Israel becomes a military might. A superpower, a military superpower. Under Solomon, they become a financial powerhouse. And so there's still peace in the land. They're still thriving militarily. No one wants to attack them because they, well, if we attack them, yeah, David's dead, but his army's still there. And so we don't want to mess with them. Plus Solomon's, he's building the temple. The, the nation's flourishing. Everything is going incredibly well for the nation of Israel. But Solomon sees danger ahead read the book of Ecclesiastes Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes he says you know what what good is wealth and power if you pass it on to idiots that's a paraphrase but basically he says what what good is it for me to have all the wealth in the world and all the power in the world if my kids are morons and they're gonna waste it and that's exactly what happens Solomon dies his son who is not very smart not very intelligent, doesn't follow God, rises up, and eventually the nation deals with a civil war and it fractures in the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom is called Judah. Now the northern kingdom does not fare well at all. They have wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And eventually, in 772 BC, they are conquered by the Assyrians. Assyrians come into the northern kingdom, conquer them, take them away captive. It's just they did not do good at all. So they take the Israelites from the northern kingdom. They spread them out through their their empire as slaves. Now Judah... The southern kingdom does better. That's why God loves the south. Amen? All right. God don't like Yankees. God likes southerners. Amen. That's my point today. Let's pray and go home. Now, uh, the south does fairly well. They do have some bad kings, but they have some good kings in there too. So they have godly king, wicked king, godly king, wicked king. And they, they fare a little better than Israel. But 136 years after the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrian Empire they are conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonians comes in, wipes out, wipes them out, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and takes every young, able-bodied person captive and leads them 800 miles away to serve in Babylon. Now, eventually, uh, Persia shows up, and Persia destroys and conquers Babylon, and so now the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians, So the Babylonians have all the slaves the Assyrians have, then they lead the southern kingdom to slavery, and then the Persians come in, they conquer the Babylonians, so they've got all the slaves the Assyrians and the Babylonians have. So every able-bodied person has been enslaved, and now they're living spread out through the ancient world in slavery to the Persian Empire. And it's been about a hundred years, which means the people who are now living in slavery to the Persians have never seen Israel. They've never seen Jerusalem. They've never seen the temple. Now, there's still Jews living in Israel, but they're still living under captivity. And so what happens in beginning in Ezra... And again, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, historically are the same book, telling the same story. But in Ezra, God uh, leads King Cyrus, the Persian king, to send some Jews back to Israel to rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. Then he sends Ezra to redo uh, the city, and, Neb- and Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall. So that's what's happening in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Jews are returning to God. They are returning to Israel. They are returning to worship. And now Ezra and Nehemiah, they happen at the, the same time, but now I want to jump in. So look at Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse number 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hagaliah, and, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, That Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked him, concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were led out of captivity, concerning Jerusalem. So this, this Jew comes in who is returning from Israel. Again, this, this uh, Hanani, he's probably a slave as well, but he's, he's part of the royal slavery. So he's probably gone to Israel for different purposes with whoever he serves. And he's gone there and he's kind of seen the state. So Nehemiah says, hey, tell me how the Jews that remain, the people who are still there, the people who weren't taken captive, how are they doing? Verse three, and they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, we read that today, and we think, what does it matter if the walls are gone and the gates burn down? See, we don't, we don't rely on walls and gates to keep our city safe. I mean, no one, when you came into Roanoke or came into Salem, had to pass through a wall or a checkpoint. So we don't get that. We're like, what, what's the big deal having walls and gates at this time? But in this time, they were necessary. As a matter of fact, in this time, the wall and the gate were more important than the army. Because the army could fend off an attack, but the wall and the gate could make sure no one even got in to attack you at all. And you could be safe Behind the walls. Without a wall, a city couldn't control its own affairs. Without walls, a city was at the mercy of raiders and enemy armies. Anyone could come in and take whatever they wanted. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, He who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. A man without self-control is like a city that has no walls for protection i'll give it to you in a kind of a way we can understand i was reading an article several months ago about this city it was by a church planner he was talking about a city up in new jersey i can't remember the name of the city but it's in new jersey so you know it's bad uh but anyway this city (laughs) he said was a city of about forty-five thousand people but they had a police force of three three people Three police officers for this, 40,000 people. Now, it wasn't a heavily crime-ridden area. It wasn't like, you know, the purge going on there all the time. But it was a difficult place to live. He says one of his church members got robbed. They come home. Their doors kicked in. Their house is ransacked. Their stuff is gone. So they call 911. 911. 911 operator says, you know, 911, what's your emergency? We've just been robbed. Someone came in, they took everything, they they destroyed our house. It's it's terrible. The 911 operator asked them, are they still in the house? No, they're not in the house. They're gone. Great. Can you take pictures and text it to the police station so we can file a report? Because they can they couldn't send anybody out to help them. They got three cops. But they're like, well, if you're not in physical danger, just email us what's happening now i can't understand that now i mean you know because we get burgled and robbed police are going to come they're going to show up especially in cave spring look we got cops in cave spring and got nothing to do and i'm happy for it i'm joy i'm glad that when one cop gets a call 14 of them show up because they're so bored woohoo keep it that away but you know i i call the police because something's going to my house i got 15 cops showing up because they got nothing better to do great I can't imagine calling the police and saying, are you in danger right now? No? Okay, great. Just text us. That's what a city without, you know what thrives in a city without walls? Violence. Anarchy. Hurt. So he comes to Nehemiah and says, the city is in desperate need. The walls are burned down. The gates are burned down. They have no protection. Look at verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, to me, that's an odd response, and here's why. He is 800 miles away from Jerusalem. He has never been to Jerusalem. He's never seen the temple. He's never seen the walls. He's never seen the gates. He doesn't know anybody there. But he hears how bad they have it, and he weeps and he mourns for days. And here's another thing. he is The Bible says he is the cupbearer of the king. The cupbearer's job was to eat the food and drink the wine before the king did to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Now, how many of y'all think the king eats chicken nuggets and french fries all the time? No, the king eats good food. The best food is served to the king. The best wine is given to the king. So, Nehemiah, he has a very cushy job. He lives in the palace. He's very, because the king... The King you want it the king wants to keep the guy who tastes his food happy. So he gives Nehemiah, hey, Nehemiah, Nehemiah's not sleeping in the dungeon and just brought up every once in a while to taste his food. No Nehemiah is living high. He's, he's got a good place to live, he's being taken care of, he's eating the best food, drinking the best wine. He has got a really good life. There is no threat to the Persian Empire right now. Now the Romans are going to come in a couple hundred years, but right now. There's no threat to the Persian Empire, which means no one's really trying to kill the king. So yeah, you've got to taste the king's food, but chances are no one's going to kill him. So you've got a pretty good job. But he hears how people that he's never met, that he's never seen, he hears how bad they have it, and it breaks his heart. Now when we read stuff like this, you've got to ask yourself a couple questions. Is this prescriptive writing or descriptive writing? Is it historical just telling us a story, or is God trying to show us how He wants us to live? Here's what I mean. In the New Testament, Paul is preaching. He preaches too long. A guy dies in his preaching. I've never had that happen. Guy, He, he preaches so long, he bores this guy literally to death. What does Paul do? He raises him from the dead. Now, is that God telling me, hey, if you ever preach so long, you start killing people, you could raise them from the dead. No, that's not, that's not prescriptive. God's not telling me I have the power to raise people up who's, who die he's just telling me a story it's a descriptive story so what is what is God doing here is God just telling me historically this is what happened this is how bad Nehemiah felt or is God telling me how he wants my heart to look when I see the pain of others is God telling me how he wants my heart to break when other people are suffering So I'm here to tell you, it's not just descriptive, this is prescriptive. God is telling us how he wants our heart to be towards the suffering and pain of others. As a believer, I am to be burdened for other believers and what they are going through. When God blesses me, I am not just to hoard those blessings and keep those blessings for myself. I am to use those blessings to help other people, especially those people who are suffering. See, so we have an idea here in Christianity, you know, because at the end of the service, we're going to pray. We're going to take up an offering. And I'm going to talk about your being faithful to your tithes. And you're thinking, man, got to give my 10%. Here's what God wants us to understand. God doesn't own 10% of whatever he's blessed you with. God owns every single bit of it, and not just what's in your bank account, because if you're like me, and like, well, God owns all that's in my bank account, well, great, what's God going to do with that $1.75? God owns everything I have. God owns my health, my my talents, my abilities, my family, my car, it's broken right now so we can have it. God owns everything I own. Everything I have is a gift from God that he has given me to steward to be a blessing to other people, to help other people who are in pain. It, now, it, we're called to be stewards of his blessing. They're not meant to stop with us. And here's the thing. It's not bad to have nice things. If you have a nice home, great. You have a nice car, wonderful. You have nice clothes. Praise God. You have the nicest stuff. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. But it's bad to say those nice things are just for me. God gave them to me to bless me. Because again, that's the attitude of because I'm the most important person in the world. Because I matter more than everyone else. Nehemiah could have easily just said, man, that stinks, but I got it pretty good. I'm blessed pretty well. I don't need to, I don't need to do anything. I What can I do? I'm 800 miles away. I'm a slave. Yeah, I'm a slave who's got it pretty good, but I'm still just a servant. What do I care? But his heart was broken and moved him to do something. So that is putting, when we just keep our, our gifts to our, and our blessings to ourselves. that is putting our preferences secondary to his. Zechariah 7 says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, that's the... the, the the foreigner in your land, or poor, and let none of you contemplate evil deeds in your hearts against his brother. So God's idea of human thriving, it begins by having an outward focus instead of an inward focus. It begins with compassion. We see this throughout the Bible. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the golden rule. Y'all know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know what most of us live by? The, the, the silver rule, doing unto others as they've done unto me. They cut me off, I'm going to cut them off. They insulted me, I'm going to insult them. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. They took from me, I'm going to take from them. She says, no, no, no. Because that's, that's you focused. That's I'm getting what's mine, I'm getting what's due me, I'm seeking revenge. God says, no, no. Treat people how you want them to treat you. Colossians chapter three verse twelve. Put on therefore as elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long suffering. We as God's people should be marked by compassion and kindness and caring and meekness. Galatians six two. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Remember in Genesis. If you, you've been reading your Bible think you started reading a new Bible study in January, you probably started in Genesis. Cain one day gets mad because his his offering's unaccepted, so he kills his brother Abel, and God comes to him and says, Hey Cain, where's your brother? Remember what Cain asked? Am I my brother's keeper? Here's the answer Yeah, you are. You are your brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. I, as a child of God, should be worried and compassionate and brokenhearted over other brothers and sisters in Christ. God has called us to love others. We're to love, to be compassionate to others, especially those in the family of God. We are to model to the world what it looks like to be the people of God and have God work through us. We are we're Nehemiah, and we're getting into this a lot more next week, but if we are going to return to God, it begins by us saying, God, when I see the need of another, I'm going to be brokenhearted over it, but I'm also going to get up and do something about it. Nehemiah didn't just hurt. We ought to care deeply for the Sacrifice, give to them in their hurt and pain. Nehemiah didn't just hurt for them. He got involved in the hurt, and he did something about it. And look, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus saw us in our pain, in our sin, in our hopelessness. And he didn't just say, oh, that's too bad. No, he was heartbroken over the fact that because of our sin, we're going to spend eternity in hell separated from him. He said, I I have to do something about that. So he became a man. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life because we couldn't. He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of our sin and absorb the punishment of God for our sin. He was buried and rose three days later to redeem us to God the Father. He was heartbroken over our, our situation, and he did something to fix it. He didn't just sit back and weep. He got involved. So how do we do that because sadly there's not just a switch we can flip in our mind and say okay now i'm going to be compassionate now i'm going to get involved so how do we do that look at nehemiah again chapter one start in verse five and i said i beseech thee o lord god of heaven the great and terrible god now the terrible doesn't mean terrible it means powerful you know awe-inspiring the great and terrible god that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and let thine eyes open. That thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night. For the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Which we have sinned against thee both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept thy commandments. Nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. So. If we want to grow in compassion, if we want to grow in our desire to be used by God, if we want to return as a church, as a believer, as a family, if we want to return to God and be used by God, there's a couple things we have to do. The first thing we have to have is we have to have a right view, number one, a right view of who God is. Look at at this prayer again. Start in verse 5. And I said I beseech the old God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy, and that love them that observe his commandments. Look, there is no evidence in Nehemiah's life, in the nation of Israel, that God is a good God. There's no evidence right now that God is faithful. Their temples burned down. Their cities destroyed. They've Every the ones that are left there, they're being being massacred. They're they're slaves. They're being constantly taken away as slaves. And if they're not taken away as slaves, they're watching their families get murdered. There is no evidence at all that God is good right now. But Nehemiah says, God, no matter what it looks like, I know you're good. I know you love us. God, you are good. You are faithful. You keep your word. You have not and you will not abandon us even in our hurt and our pain. You love us. He is viewing God on his word and his character, not on his circumstances. If you view God as being good through your circumstances, you're not going to see God as very good. You're going to see God as vengeful. Doesn't care. Look. Look. Uh, several, back in December, uh, I cracked a valve cover on my, my car. I, th- I didn't blow a gasket. I cracked the cover itself. So I ordered the part, but then, of course, the temperature was like, you know, negative 30. God was trying to kill us with cold. And uh, so I'm like, I'm going to wait until it warms up till you know, because we, we were getting bad with one car, so no big deal. So I waited till it, before it warmed up, and last Monday, I began fixing my Explorer. Had to, I don't know if you've ever changed the valve cover. It ain't easy. You have to take basically everything off. So I'm taking my engine apart. I've got stuff everywhere, but I made sure to take pictures and note. okay, this goes back here, this plugs into here, this hose goes there, and made sure, but eventually, after two days, I got the valve cover changed. Put everything back, plugged it in, started it up, ran it for 45 minutes as I cleaned up my mess. As I walked, like, and, and you know, it was, it was running, it was idling fine. It sounded a little wonky, but oh well. I'm like, you know, it, it hadn't, it hadn't sounded the best in the last two years anyway, so no, well. And so I thought, great, it's fixed. Woo, finally. Turn it off, go inside, go to bed, wake up the next day, get in the car to come to work. Before I left my house, in my Explorer, it's running. I say, God, I, I just need this thing to last a year. I'm not asking you to anoint it with Holy Spirit power where it goes back to brand new and lasts me for an eternity. God, just give me a year. Just let this thing last a year. You know, it took me a while to change this thing. I hope I did it right. It's running. I'm assuming I did. Give me a year. Back out. Go down the road. I get two miles from the house. And it dies. I thought, thank you, Jesus. I asked for a year. I got ten minutes. Now I think it's a fuel pump issue. I don't know. I haven't gotten into it. I was that day. I was very angry, and I was. I was. I was calling junkyards. You want to come get this piece of garbage? Come take it right now. I don't want it. I'm done with it. But I finally calmed down. And said I'll, I'll deal with it later. And so I could have very easily looked at my situation, sat sitting on the side of the road with a car. I spent two days, busted my hands up, lost my religion a couple times trying to fix. I could have easily looked at it and said, God, I asked you for a year. You gave me 10 minutes. You are not good. But God's goodness is not based on my circumstances. God is with me no matter what I'm facing, no matter what I'm going through. Because I can obviously look at it and say, that's just terrible, but here's another thing I can say, God, yeah, you, 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 you didn't answer my prayer for the car, but you know what? God, I still have another one at home I can use. I still, I still am able to drive. It didn't break down on I-81. I get smashed by a 18-wheeler. You kept me safe. It was parked in a safe neighborhood. You know. Now, the guy who I was parked in front of his house was a jerk and put his trash can right in front of my truck right next to it. But anyway, that's not his fault. Uh, but anyway, I could have said, God, you, you, you're still better to me than I deserve. I, I didn't have to walk 20 miles. I just called April. Now, she was upset because she had to come out and get me. Uh, but, you know, I can... I don't base God's goodness on what I'm going through. I base it on the fact that God is good. We will never have a heart to help others, to restore others, to get involved with others if we don't realize who God is. That, yeah, the walls may be broken down, the temple may be burned, we may be scattered, but God is still good. God loves you no matter what. God is for you no matter what. God is faithful no matter what. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenant with us despite us. We have to have a right view of who God is. That goes hand in hand with the next thing, number two. We have to have a right view of who we are. Look at verse number 6. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah starts confessing the sins of the nation. God, we haven't been faithful to you. God, we've forgotten about you. God, we've blatantly disobeyed you, but you have still kept your word. We haven't kept your commandments. We have not put you first. And he also, he realizes his part in it. And look, this is hard for a lot of us. Our, we live in a country has a lot of sins. And we as believers, we as, I'm uh, probably good at name it, saying this, we as conservative Republicans can very easily look at the other side and say, that's their sin. That's their problem. That's what they did wrong. Nehemiah says, no, 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 I had a part in it too. Nehemiah wasn't there when they ignored God. He wasn't there when they went to Baal worship. He wasn't there when I, but he goes, God, I had a part in that. I had a part in that. I had a part in the abortion situation in America. I had a part in the. And look, maybe some of you here. I love America. I'm so grateful that I live in in America, that I am born when I am, where I am. I have the freedom I have. But a lot of people, you know, make America great. America's the best country in the the world. America's got some, some bad stuff in its past. You know how we got this country? We slaughtered the people that were here first. Then we enslaved a whole other race of people to build it up. America has got a very dark past. Now, look, me personally never killed an Indian. Never one time gave them smallpox. Never one time don't a slave. But I say, God, I I had a part in that. I don't know what part I had, but, Lord, even the sins of our nation. Lord, I confess the sins of our nation. I confess the sins we're dealing with now because, Lord, maybe it's my fault because I haven't preached you enough. Maybe it's my fault because I haven't shared your word enough. Lord, I haven't been broken enough over. So, Lord, I am going to confess the sins of my nation. I'm going to put myself, Lord, I am guilty of it too. He had a right view of who he was. Here's what I'm trying to get at. The more elevated view you have of yourself, the harder it is you you have to be compassionate for others. If you have good, godly, respectful kids, you have a hard time being compassionate for people whose kids are strung out on drugs or in prison or just living wayward lives. like, Well, if they'd have just done what I did, if they'd have lived like I lived... If they'd have treated their kids, if they'd have raised their kids like I raised my kids, their kids wouldn't be messing up right now. And so you you have a high. If you think, well, my, look, my marriage is great, and if people would just do their marriage like I do my marriage, they would have a great marriage. So if their marriage is on the rocks, it's their fault. I can't feel bad for them. But God may have blessed you with great financial wisdom and capacity to earn money and giving you the wisdom to take care of it and provide for it, and so you're financially stable. And if that's all because you are a financial genius, when you look at someone who's struggling to pay their bills week by week or they're in debt, you have a hard time being compassionate for them because, you know, if they had just done like I did, they'd be fine. If they wouldn't waste their money on those things, they'd be fine. The more you are the author and finisher of your th- things in your life, the harder it is for you to sow sympathy for others. A high view of who you are makes it impossible for you to love others and walk in compassion with them because it creates a judgmental harshness that God will have nothing to do with. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah could easily look at Israel and say, God, I wasn't born yet, God. I wasn't here. I was born in Persia. I was ready. Lord, I didn't do it. Now, obviously, Nehemiah knows God, knows about him. Nehemiah may be living a, a very holy life. He may be obeying the commandments. And he can look back and say, well, they're in Israel, they're in, they're in, in, in Jerusalem. They're suffering because of what they did because, no, God, I'm nothing, just like they're nothing. And if they're hurting, I have to do something about it. Have a right view of who you are. See, my hope for this series as we look at the return of Israel is we get a a right view of who God is. That no matter what we're going through, God's for us. God loves us. God's going to fight for us. But also get a right view of who we are. Your your life may have everything going on for you right now. You may be healthy. You may have plenty of money in the bank. Your kids may be serving God and doing great, and your family's awesome, and you may your life may look like the cleavers right now. But don't ever get so puffed up you think, that's because of me. And if people would just do what I do, they'd be like me. No. We say, God, thank you that my life's going well right now. I know it has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with you. But God, open my eyes to see the hurt of others. When we put God in his proper place, we put ourselves in our proper place, then we'll be ready to rebuild, to restore, and to revive. If you find yourself being indifferent, cold, or judgmental towards other people, God cannot use you. See why are you telling us this, preacher? Well, because... This year, not only the year of devotion, this year is the year I want new grace to be used to reach some pretty rough folks. Tomorrow night I'm going to uh, celebrate recovery program to learn how to, how, to, how to start one. And here's my prayer, here's my hope, that as we reach out to those people who I keep talking about who are just like a block away. Those people who are struggling in addiction and, and poverty and just broken and beaten and battered, I want them filling Pews. And I don't want us to come in, dress nice, have our family together, look and say, ugh, can't believe they let themselves get to that. I want us to come in and see someone who, maybe, they, maybe they're 24 hours clean of meth. They smell funny, they look funny, they're acting weird. But I want us to come in and say, God, I'm not too many decisions from being there. So I'm going to do whatever I can to help that person. To show that person the love of God, to reach them with the gospel and help them overcome the things that, Lord, just by the grace of God, I don't deal with right now. I want us to have a broken heart for people, but also maybe someone in this church who's looking good and dressed nice, maybe in a couple months, a couple weeks, a couple days, a couple years something happens in their life, and they may mess up and sin terribly, and you think, I would never do. Don't ever look at someone's sin and say, I would never do that. You might. You never know what you do until you're far away from God. But to see someone who's in sin and say, God, I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to be compassionate to restore them because but by the grace of God, I could be there as well. I want our hearts to be softened, be compassionate, to thrive, so God can use us to do great things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.